bygones be bygones with bygones and spray Tired of biting my tongue, I say what I gotta say My, my sweetest dream was to live free with the brigade But I'm from America, they soon take dreams away Feel like I'm in a what are we to believe nowadays? It's a question that most of us have asked ourselves since social media platforms began competing with traditional media outlets in the 2010s. One of the advantages of traditional media-only environments back in the day, and I'm talking about CNN, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Washington Post, etc., was that we knew who to hold accountable and we could go directly to their buildings even to protest if we objected to their coverage. But with the advent of social media, the days of writing to the editor have become much less meaningful, if not extinct altogether. Everyone has the power to push out information, and that's actually a good thing. We saw the power of citizen journalism during the Ferguson uprisings and how they helped to push out culturally competent narratives when local and national media failed to do so. And we also saw how this citizen journalism pushed media outlets to diversify their own newsrooms, even though they still have a lot of work to do in this area. All of this is thanks to social media. And as far as I'm concerned, the more speech, the better. And social media is a great evolution of what the first amendments intentions were but what happens when people abuse say twitter to spread lies that most folks don't have the education or the bandwidth to cross check or worse you can have a billionaire like elon musk take over that platform and he can all but sanction disinformation simply because he owns the platform and the u.s government has few legal tools to stop him at least for now a Pew Research Center study from 2020 found that people who mainly got their news from social media are less engaged and less knowledgeable, especially about politics. A Scientific American article, also from 2020, reported that COVID-19 misinformation is literally killing people. In Canada, researchers found that COVID misinformation led to the deaths of nearly 3,000 people per a news report from the Global News Channel out of Canada. Well, we know misinformation and conspiracy theories are spreading faster than ever before, largely online. But quantifying the damage they do is not easy. Now a group of academics has attempted to add up the impact of misinformation about COVID-19 in Canada. The Council of Canadian Academies estimates misinformation contributed to the vaccine hesitancy of more than 2 million Canadians during a nine-month period in 2021. It estimates that hesitancy led to at least 2,800 deaths, along with an estimated $300 million in medical costs. It says misinformation also led to deep divisions within society, even within families, divisions that continue today. This episode of Black Diplomats will feature one of the United States' top disinformation experts, Shereen Mitchell, president of Stop Online Violence Against Women. Shereen has been a leading voice on online disinformation against women for over a decade. She has published numerous studies on the impact unchecked harassment has had on women, particularly women of color. She was one of the first scholars to warn about misogyny online against black women and the impact it has had on women of color at large. During our discussion, we talked about how she was one of the first online disinformation experts to draw parallels between unchecked misogyny against black women and Russian disinformation campaigns that dogged the 2016 presidential elections. Then we unpacked how European regulators monitor social media platforms in ways that the U.S. refuses to do and why that is. Then we deep dive into mainstream media's failure to learn from past mistakes of platforming liars, all in the name of ratings. And yes, we are talking about that debacle of a CNN Trump town hall. And boy, did he turn it into a super spreader disinformation event. What harm will that event and those that follow have on U.S. media literacy and the rest of the world? That and much more on this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Before we get into the show, 
please remember to support Black Diplomats by going to support us on PayPal at paypal.me backslash Black Diplomats. Cash app, you can go to cash sign Black Diplomats and Venmo at account.venmo.com backslash you backslash Black Diplomats. The links are also available in the show notes as well. And please do rate us with a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, and on every platform on which you listen to the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Shereen. Biting my tongue, I see what I gotta say. My sweetest dream was to live free with the brigade, but I'm from America, they soon take dreams away. So, Shereen, anytime I want to understand disinformation, I always think about you <laughs> for the very simple reason that you have been a leading voice in the coalition of women, but particularly black women who've been calling this shit out like for years when years. Twitter was popping off and the warnings are not heated often. And you always explaining the damage done, what could have happened. And I know that this world, our social media environments would be much safer, more efficient places if people like you were running them. So <laughs> that's my, I, you know, just want to lead off with that. But before we get into these topics of the day, I want to ask you, how are you doing from a mental health standpoint? Mm. I would say when uh, the year ended after the crazy, you know, Walker versus Warnock uh, election, I was pretty fried. I was like, where are we going? What is happening? Why is this so close? Why are we allowing these narratives, these false narratives to continue to perpetuate politically in media and otherwise without checking any of it? And I think that as I started this year, I took I took a little bit of a break because I was like, Take a step back. What are you watching? What is happening? What are people missing that for you feels like everybody should know? Because that was the that's the problem when you are entrenched in this for so long, you see it immediately. Like you like what dot dot like it's coming here 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 and here. And I had to check myself on that because when I formed Digital Sisters at the time, the idea that girls of color should be learning how to code was like, I was told every day, like, that's not real. Why are you bothering? Like what, you know, what's that about? And 10 years later, we're like, oh, you know, we need to have women of color in tech. And now we're going through the other end of it where it was like, well, we said we wanted women of color in tech, but really we don't want that. We don't want women of color in any of this. And we are okay with targeting that group to justify our actions. And so coming out of um, uh, last year, 2020 election, I realized that it is like this uh, normative framework to one, constantly go after Black women. Like public degradation of Black women is just a common thing, but it's wrapped in the missing disinformation, the stuff that Megan the Stallion went through, the stuff that Megan Marco went through the things that Lizzo goes through, it's all centered around the discrediting and and, and, and degradation, public degradation of Black women. So going back to why SOVA was founded, it was founded over the constant online harassment, online violence towards women of color, particularly Black women. So here we are a whole decade later, and it's the media even participates in it. Right. And you're just like, so when I said it and everyone was like, why are you doing it? Here we are in a daily practice and no one's calling it out again. Right. And years later, there's something more here. That's why I took a break. Cause I was like, there's, there's way more going on here. And I yeah. think that we have socially accepted certain missing disinformations to the extent that it really doesn't matter what black women do including myself, because it will always be seen as something problematic instead of the people doing the harmful, problematic actions. Online, offline, media, 
the Royals, the, you know, like it, it honestly, like, like we have to come to grips with that. And so as a black woman, that was hard to kind of like sit with, because that means it doesn't matter what I do. I still got to do my best. But at the end of the day, there will be someone in my comments. There will be someone out there trying to like from Harvard to the Royals. Like there will always be someone trying to attempt to discredit the work that we've been doing. Let's talk about this tobacco of a town hall held with Donald Trump and all the unchecked lies he told. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've likely heard how bad it was. You may have also heard Anderson Cooper gaslight us about it. If you haven't heard his gaslighting, here's a snippet of his defense of the Donald Trump town hall. Now, maybe you haven't been paying attention to him since he left office. Maybe you've been enjoying not hearing from him, thinking it can't happen again. Some investigation is going to stop him. Well, it hasn't so far. So if last night showed anything, it showed it can happen again. It is happening again. He hasn't changed and he is running hard. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is gonna make that person go away? If we all only listen to those we agree with, it may actually do the opposite. If lies are allowed to go unchecked, as imperfect as our ability to check them is on a stage in real time, those lies continue and those lies spread. If you're angry or upset, I understand, but you have the power to do something about it. You can actually get involved. You can make a difference, whatever side of the aisle you're on. After last night, none of us can say, I didn't know what's out there. I didn't know what's coming. Okay, so let's just start off with the fact that it was very self-righteous and a bit indignant. For one, we have 2016 to know what happened. We don't need you to platform this man and to spread lies unchecked because it's almost impossible to fact check someone live. You have to do it on delay. There are a number of things you have to do. And the best way to stop someone from spreading this information is to not platform them. That's the primary thing. Mm -hmm. Number two, when he ended off by saying, because this is a part of a more than 10 minute um, um, segment, but he basically, you know, ended off by saying, well, you can't say we didn't warn you. Look, people have been warning about this right-wing extremism for more than a decade, along with you. And so they're pretty much doing this for the ratings. We understand that. And we know that he does, they don't particularly care that he lies. And they also have all this BS philosophy about journalism not having an opinion. But this is not about having an opinion. This man repeatedly lied. And it doesn't seem like the media have learned much of anything from the first term of Trump, have they, Shereen? No, no. And I think that also what, what Anderson Cooper participated in is something that happens to Black Americans all the time. When we call out the white supremacy, white people go, but you should still know that they exist. We already know they exist, right? We live with that existence. We're trying to keep ourselves safe from that and what you're doing is platforming it to the extent that now more white people can potentially join in to harm us even further. What they what he did was basically say, as a white person, we know we got bad actors in our community. We want you to know they are there and we're doing our best to just expose them. You're not exposing them. You're allowing them to garner more fellowship while you're claiming to be innocent in the process while doing nothing but amplifying them which isn't helpful you're not you're not stopping them you're not deplatforming them you're giving them a platform how does that help us when we for 400 years knew that they existed right so i am having a you know but i'm not particularly surprised that they would take this approach because there's just something about mainstream journalism in general, right? That prides itself on being objective. And you see the same thing that goes on in presidential debates. You see it where people blatantly lie and the moderators don't check them 
And when they get feedback online about their failure to fact check people, then the organization that's moderating or the presidential committee that forms it will say that it's not our job to fact check. And my response is, then what the fuck are we here for? Exactly. So this would be the perfect example to go back to. Imagine where we would be if Don Lemon was the one fact checking him, right? Like, just think about that for a second. He was basically kind of removed for, you know, fact checking Vivek, who is a Indian uh, presidential candidate. Which is a which is a man of color, and somehow the black man can't even check the the person of color. So imagine what that would mean if that if that black person was trying to check a white supremacist, right? We don't want that part. Like it is very clear that they only think that objectivity means that they have the right to be objective about things about us, but somehow we are not objective about things about them. That we have biases when their biases are also built in by protecting and giving the benefit of, of the doubt to people that they already know is harmful and telling us that they're exposing them for us when we know who they are and we know who you are. So we are the ones that are more objective because we can see the whole spectrum while you're spending energy trying to tell us that we're the ones biased because we see the harm being inflicted and you still want to sit at the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And so, and that's what happened on that stage. Right. It was like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to correct him here and here, but he kept repeating the lies. So how much of a benefit of the doubt you're going to keep granting when the whole time for the whole hour, he repeated the lies. He repeated them before he got there, but then he repeated them for the whole hour. Right. And, and here's the thing about it. I don't recall exactly when I started following you because I feel like I've been in touch with you for a while. It's been years because I started with you even before I was working at The Root. And you yeah. and I remember I was doing a lot of work or a lot of a lot of articles focusing on online harassment and verbal violence and threats against women. And your organization has been at the forefront of this and you were very critical of Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, on this. And they dealt with the same issues that we saw take place on CNN, but just on a social media platform. That's pretty much the only difference. And, but here's the ironic part. Twitter, for all of their failures to address this issue, it's nothing compared to what Elon Musk is doing. And one of his major disastrous decisions comes uh, with him now requiring people to pay for their blue checks, their verification. And it's something that most people who've had that verification uh, refuse to do, including me, because I refuse to play for a goddamn blue check. Uh, Former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security and Harvard Kennedy School of Government Professor Juliette Kayyem, she laid out on PBS how harmful this move has been from a human crisis management standpoint. What are the real world implications of that verification process going away? Right, so verification was part of an overall process that Twitter had that made it the most reliable platform, especially in times of emergency or disaster, which is the world that I come from, disaster management. And what it did is it ensured that the way the algorithm worked is that when something bad happened, journalists, government officials, emergency managers, their information, what they were seeing, what they were hearing, and most importantly, what did they want community members to do? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you evacuate? Do you shelter in place? Those are important decisions to be made with just a few moments notice. All of those were now valid, were validated through the blue check mark. Now, just you know, based on experience, but because we know the blue check mark is unreliable, uh, Twitter feeds, just think of a school shooting, Twitter feeds are just unreliable, they're not helpful, they're not giving you information in real time. So that has been a, I I said, Twitter used to be good at saving lives. I know it's hard for people to believe, but it really became a way in which public safety agencies were pushing out information. Mm -hmm. And as importantly, it became a way in which communities and information was being heard by government officials. That's a system with, that's called API, but basically in a, let's say the earthquake in Turkey, government officials would follow what was happening on Twitter. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who seem to be, you know, 
uh, under rubble here. There's a lot of people who seem to be without water here. And that would help drive resources. That whole system is now unreliable, uh, not accessible. Uh, and so I know we talk a lot about what's bad about Twitter, but at one stage it was really good. It yeah. was really, really good. So I want to follow up with that because you all who were listening and you, Shereen, um, were following me when I was in Ukraine. One of the one of the things that I did off the top was I helped to verify reporters and organizations on the ground who are actually doing the work of evacuating people, uh, fundraisers. I helped to verify legitimate news accounts because and I was working directly with a human at Twitter, you know, even sometimes a call. And I would say, hey, trust this person, this person, this person. They need to be verified. They're doing this. They're doing that. So. I was a verifier online. I can't recall how many accounts that I helped to verify in that very critical time. I wouldn't be surprised if it's 100. I don't want to put a number on it, but it was a whole lot. In addition to, to verifying people, I also helped to evacuate a number of families out. And so as I was traveling around the country, going, going through Ukraine, a trip that would take maybe 16 hours, it took three and a half days. And there would be times when I could not get on booking.com or Airbnb to book housing for myself or the people I was helping. So what I ended up doing was putting a call out to people saying, hey, I'm going to be in this town around this time. And can someone offer any housing whatsoever and that whole community just responded to me. The algorithms were high. The people at Twitter amplified me. And so it really worked during that time. And I think that that verification was essential along with everything that came with it. Now that doesn't exist anymore. And a lot of my colleagues who did not necessarily have the name recognition that I had in the community or online, no longer have that extra layer of trust that I worked with Twitter to establish with them. So I just want to get your thoughts on what um you know on, on what Miss Kayam said and your analysis of of this disastrous decision to require people to pay for the verification. Yeah, I think that there's there's a couple things here. And like even now, like when I see a celebrity, you know, tweet about something that happened to them, I now have to like double check if it's really the celebrity or not. Like it's mind boggling, right? Um, what I what I want to say is that what she said was really important because she's looking at it from like the urgency piece. And I, as someone who also followed you, had people follow you about do you want to know what's on the ground? Um, like you were instrumental in that. So I just want to thank you for even I was a little bit worried about you for a minute there. You know that. Um, Cause I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you, you know, like this is a war. Anyway, I, I know reporters do that anyway. I know that that's key, but what you just spoke to was about like the things that happened during the Arab spring, right? That happened. Like we have all these instances, what happened during Black Lives Matter, the key people who were helping to do the real organizing versus those that were bad actors, right? There was a there was a piece there. Now I have to be honest, I never believed in the blue check. I've never gotten a blue check and I would never even from the beginning to this moment, imagine paying for it. Um, but I will say this really important part. What it did was it at least verified government agencies in a way that made people feel like these agencies are trusted. What I call him apartheid Clyde, <laughs> what he ended up doing was even uh, discrediting the likes of news from NPR. Remember that? Like he said that they were state sanctioned media, right? Which is absolutely incorrect uh it wasn't just what he's done to make it untrustworthy for government for government entities but even certain media entities as well and so i think that like that lack of trust that we have on this on this system now is so detrimental across the board but but i think the key to safety right I want to make sure that that's it's clear that safety is even worse than it was when I was calling out the lack of safety. Like we are now in, in a very much detrimental era and the harms that can be inflicted, the loss of life that can happen. Because you have to remember, he's also brought back people who were pulled off the app, app for putting out false information about the virus. 
that was getting millions of people killed, right? Like we have to be honest about not just what the government uh, resources were at the time so that people knew what to do and how to take care of themselves. But this was medical decisions, uh, allowing people to put out things that that could get people killed, i.e., you know, ivermectin and all the things that like bleach like like, think about it like and some of that came from the government (laughs) because agent orange 45 but there were key things that were 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 double checked and triple checked so that so that so that people knew where to go to get the correct information at this point we're back at the sort of oh my opinion everyone's opinion is equal there are no experts you can trust uh, there's no one that you can see, even people who are expert who decide to pay for it, they can't be trusted any differently than someone who says, I'm a doctor. I, I call myself, my, I call myself Dr. B and, and here's my experience. And they've bought a blue check and pe- like, who are you supposed to believe in between? I think that it's not just them making it worse for the blue checks but it makes it worth for the actual safety of every user on the, on the platform. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that we take for granted, well, not you or me, but that, but so many people who don't work in media and are experts in disseminating information or analyzing it is that we do this for a living. We wake up every Mm -hmm. morning and we are deciding what information goes out there or not. In your case, you're verifying the, um, the, the, the veracity of checks and balances at media organizations. So this is our work. We make our bread and butter yeah. doing this. Most Americans do not. We don't, we, most Americans do not have media literacy. We are not properly educated or encouraged to be knowledgeable about civics. We are a country that actively discourages people from voting, particularly in Republican states. And so to ask them to juggle these varying ebbs and flows and ups and downs in social media landscape is really a lot to ask, given that so many Americans are just trying to get by with their day. And we are really lucky if they can get 30 minutes of the five o'clock news and hopefully yeah. they're paying attention to it. And we know that there is this danger of local news being cut because of finances. And you have these hyper conservative billionaires that are taking over and they're further distorting the truth, essentially doing what Elon Musk is doing. But I want to take this global because one of the things that I've noticed is that the European Union, for example, they are far more strict when it comes to regulating social media usage. Now, here in the United States, you have Elizabeth Warren, who has been trying to push legislation that would put social media companies under government regulation. I want to know your thoughts about that. But I want to show you something that's coming out of the EU. Basically, uh, they so it, it uh, the European Union announced uh, a few weeks ago that Twitter is going to be one of 19 major tech platforms subject to a centralized oversight um, uh, uh, by, by the European Union's executive committee. And it's going to be under the Digital Services Act. And so what they want and the reason why this act exists is that it takes major steps to mitigate systemic risks of disinformation and so if um and 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 if twitter doesn't comply the revenue they can be fined uh for hundreds of millions of dollars and they have repeatedly warned uh the european union has repeatedly warned twitter that it's falling short of following the guidelines and regulations of the digital services act And so I'm curious about why you believe that the European Union is a lot further ahead on this than we are in the United States. It's a really basic answer. It's it's also a very simple one. Um, Most of the tech companies are American-based tech companies. No matter their expansion into global frameworks, they're American-based. So we got politicians, lobbyists, uh, tech lobbyists, who participate in making it easier for American tech companies 
to do a lot of things that they should not do. If you think about it in the context of this, which is what was going on some years before, um, now we're having like the debate about TikTok, right? Because TikTok is a foreign tech company in America. Funny how we want to treat the TikTok China foreign entity different from American companies. TikTok is not doing anything different than the American companies are doing with collecting data and digital uh, uh, pri- and violating digital privacy in, in different levels. You tell me why all of a sudden there's a difference where now you got companies like uh, Facebook going, oh yeah, pay attention to TikTok, right? Like everything that Facebook did, including interfering in our, our government relations, i.e. elections, somehow we're supposed to look past that and like go, oh, well, it's the foreign companies. No, the foreign companies were holding the tech companies accountable because they were not their laws are different and they were not uh, European based. They were working or had companies. Think about it. When when Twitter tried to fire um, the European staff, they were violating laws. American laws made it easy for him to just fire whoever he wanted. And that included, just be clear, like the people that you were working with, right? That whole team is gone, Right. There's no, like, what was the recourse to keep that team there, right? Why didn't the, why didn't the government, you know, intervene uh, and, and say that there was like a humanitarian crisis there, right? Because our laws look very different when it comes to protecting workers. And what happens over in, in the UK and other uh, foreign entities, they push back on our, on our tech companies. And so I think that they were also using TikTok as, as an example to say like, well, if we get pushed back on, you know, from, from a global perspective, we should push back on any of the foreign tech companies that might come into America. And I do think that what, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, she's always been sort of in the forefront. By the way, Elizabeth Warren, I have such respect for because she was one of the only candidates that actually took some of my messaging or understanding of disinformation politically. And she had a whole agenda on disinformation politically. There was no other candidate. I don't care who you want to speak about, the the, the Dems or the, or the Republicans. Nobody else had an agenda that said we need to address disinformation. I wish more candidates had picked that up. We would not be here if that was true, right? But that is why she's also one of the ones that looks at the tech companies and sees the damage that they're doing, the the, the data privacy violations. We have several bills that are still in place, but we're not able to address it because the lobbying that comes from the tech companies, local American tech companies, is always still accepted as like, well, we don't want to stifle innovation. Well, this is not about in- innovation. This is about American lives. And if we're okay with saying innovation is more important than American lives, then we fundamentally have a have a problem here. What the UK is saying that we don't, they don't agree with that. And we should start have start having questions about why is why is that okay? And I think that when when we talk about like what can we do, there are policies and bills that we have on the books right now that could be could be passed, but they aren't being passed because we have not enough politicians that see the value in protecting uh, American citizens. Now they'll talk about protecting children all day long, but still won't pull the um pull the lever on whether on like what that looks like to broaden it to protecting all of us or restrict access to the type of weapons that literally kill children. So it's uh, yeah. So I also think that there's a cultural dynamic to it as well. I think that in Europe and I, I spend a lot of time there, if you all know, when you talk about these labor laws, the, the average European gets about 30 days of vacation. They, you know, and we saw the major protests in Paris and across France. It was all about labor. There is a different understanding of community there. And that's another podcast about why that is. But their sense of community is just a lot stronger, the fabric of it, than ours. And Europe has a lot of problems like everyone else. But from that standpoint, they're a bit ahead of us. Germany, for example, if someone files a complaint against you, they send you a notice, particularly in Twitter, to let you know that, hey, someone filed this complaint against you and it's your right to know. So there's just more transparency overall with their system. I think that's what it is.
One of the biggest failures of disinformation going unchecked is that misogynists of all races and backgrounds have been able to use social media platforms to spread the very worst views about women. A few weeks ago, you all heard me discuss Andrew Tate, a former kickboxer who's currently under investigation in Romania for alleged sex trafficking, rape, and other alleged crimes. He, like many young misogynists, are acolytes of Jordan Peterson, somebody who I call the intellectual ringleader of the incels. Shereen and I talk about how online misogyny has impacted black men, some of whom have taken their misogyny global. I'm from America, gotta go get this job. Hold on, putting no makeup for this fake ass facade. I want to talk to you about the this hashtag passport bros because I think that they have just taken the Kevin Samuels mantle and just globalized it, and particularly with black men. And when I saw passport bros, I was a little bit skeptical because anytime something says bro. It just reads incel or misogyny, bros. It's something that it's it, 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 it's just it's massage. It's just it's black misogyny. Misogyny noir. Misogyny noir, right? And so, what I found particularly troubling about it is that these guys literally travel. To different countries, to, to countries that are considered developing, and say this is where you can find a woman. And if you listen to some of their online diatribes, it's very anti-black woman. And they and I'm like, oh, it was. It felt really kind of. It made me feel uncomfortable. I said, my God, didn't a, a black woman birth you and raise you? And you know, it's one thing if you want to travel abroad and find someone. I'm, I'm, I'm a big person. I don't care about your preferences, but why do you have to diss black women? But it has a danger, and it has this, also this dangerous component. You know, to me, that you are, you know, you you take this platform. You're going to these countries, particularly non-black women, particularly in Asia, and you got these women, local women, talking about why they are the better mates for black men. And they're doing it in this exploitive. That's the main thing. And so you say you can't find a woman here. No, you what you what you don't want is a woman who has options economically, and they don't need to be a, attached to your no good, broke, downtrodden ass, right? <laughs> and so they want so so they go abroad to do this, and it's the weirdest thing because I live abroad half the time, and. I've dated abroad, et cetera, but I would never use my platform to talk about, hey guys, you need to go to Ukraine and find you some chicks, even though men do it. But it it, it really, I wanted to bring this up with you because I want to know your particular analysis of this because it seems very harmful and, and, and it has potential to spiral into something that we we don't foresee but something bad i think this goes back to the root of what i said earlier when we were watching the patterns of targeting black women right which now we know was actually also happening to impact elections it's the same thing right when i talked about targeting the successful you know black women and all the spaces in between it's also to continue the framework that you know the single moms are bad there are too many babies who so out of wedlock that the detriment, the whole black community is black women's fault. While black men are not taking care of the children, like the, the people taking care of the children are the ones that are problems, but the ones that aren't like, oh, they can just go be out passport brooding and going off to other women having more babies <laughs> out of wedlock. And, and we're all on the same page. Right. I think that um, the whole concept of this was was predicated on the same sort of how do we continue this narrative that black women are problematic in general, but also with the messaging that allows some, some sense of, um, what's the word I want to say? Some sense of like, well, there's a reason why, you know, black men don't want to be with an angry black woman, right? Like it's the, you, you know, that it's the angry black woman narrative. Now be clear that narrative was created alongside the welfare queen narrative. They were 
the you got the welfare queen narrative, you got the angry woman narrative, and you got the poor single black mom narrative. That's all created to basically say that black women can't be successful or do anything uh, and, 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 uh, or, or have any kind of level of success again, while they go after the Megan Markles and the, and the, uh, uh, Meg the stallions and the Lizzo's of the world, right? Because there is a level of success there. And it's like, well, we got to shrink those so that black women don't know that they can be successful while constantly pep- perpetuating these, these literally, in my opinion, white supremacy talking points. That's all it is though, Shireen. That's, that's all it is. I mean, you know, like all yes. of this shit is born out of white supremacist behavior, even this anti-trans um, narrative and yeah. L- L- LGBTQ. There is a book uh, I'm looking at right now. It's called Invisible No More. It's Andrea Ritchie, um, Invisible No More. And the foundation of what we're both talking about, you know, whether it's anti-LGBTQ, is it anti-Black woman, it dates back to white supremacy and invisible no more really breaks that down. Yeah. And these black men who are spouting this bullshit don't, I don't think they have the intellectual depth to really appreciate what they're doing. And to be honest with you, when you think about Kevin Samuels, one of the main people that he quoted was Jordan Peterson. Jor- Jordan Peterson. Yes. Which is one of the white incels. One of the leading black man, the leading manosphere insults. These black men are being led by the nose by white men, and and don't even think that they are. Like if you think about the even even them repeating the trope of nuclear family, that was a TV trope. Why are you repeating that trope? Right? Like just think about that for a second. We, when we came here, black women were forced to have up to 27 baby daddies. So all of a sudden them being single moms is a problem. They were single moms back then. Even if they were able to be married, i.e., you know, illegally, right? Their partners would be stripped for them. Their children would be stripped for them. So all of a sudden they're bad moms while they had children stripped from them, had to take care of children brought to that, brought to that land and then being forced to take care of white children. How are they the bad moms? How is that, how does that work when those women were, were, were forced to be community mothers? They are the bad mothers because they're no longer in nuclear families. We never were in, it's not no longer. We never were in those, in those, uh, uh, formats. We have worked to get towards that, but that towards is based on white supremacy narratives that the only way that you can have a family is if you have two parents married with children. The truth is you can have a two-parent family and y'all don't have to be married. You can be a two-parent family and and be the same sex. You can have a two-parent family and have you and your sister uh, holding hold it down with all of your children. You can be a two-parent family in a whole bunch of different ways. But if you are forcing this quote-unquote, you know, heterosexual normative, that is white supremacy talking points, mostly from a TV trope. Imagine walking around talking about nuclear family that was based on a TV model right. and not reality. Right. So not stats. Well, as as Malcolm X um, used to say, who taught you to hate yourself? Like, <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, um, exactly. Yeah. So. so, so now you want, you want, they, they're walking around wanting the positionality of white men and the white men are, are basically not supporting you, but allowing you to help destroy the community based system and the, and the community familial system of the, of the black family, because we have been doing it for 400 years, which is how we survive. Absolutely. And so just closing out, it it just seems like so many of the things that you've been talking about for more than a decade, you are dealing with these very domestic elements and they've just become global. And it started off with these American-based companies that refused to rein in, that refused to heed the warnings that you're talking about, because you also deal with Russian disinformation as well. You covered that yeah. extensively um, during the election, a little bit before that, and you saw these signs. And one of the things that you did was that you drew parallels. You drew, yes. and, and, and I don't think that you get enough credit for that. You you were, you were called Russian disinformation out longer than a lot of the experts that were on MSNBC, CNN, you name it. You were the one, and your analysis was sharper. It was better because you had a broader cultural context 
that a lot of the experts that were prep formed to talk about this subject lacked. And you, I just want people who are listening that you are the foremost person that, that catches on that because what you were essentially was saying is that the Russians take advantages of our weaknesses. They're not particularly creative, but they're very keen on what makes our society weak and they pounce on it. They take advantage of it. They manipulate it for their own gain. And in essence, they manipulate us. Um, what is your closing about, I just want to, you know, given all the work you've been doing um, over these past 10 years, what what's, what's your, what's your approach, one, to improving this for people who are listening? And then secondly, how can we as consumers protect ourselves? against this disinformation? I think it's really important to understand that that you are the target. And one of the things about being the target means that sometimes the information that you, or the things that you believe is what they use as the weapon for you being targeted, right? If you have a belief system in place, I think most people think that that like what, what was happening in the beginning, again, we put out the first report that identified that the Russians were using black identity as a weapon for election interference, right? That became painfully clear. We also now know that other campaigns were participating in it as well. Even going into 2020 and 2022, we saw the same thing. We saw political ads using that same narrative of, of interference by using black identity as the weapon. Like if you are the target, you have to understand that this is not about your um, education. This about this is about your identity, and it's also about belief systems, and that and that's the weapon that I think that people can't don't sit with. Right? I've been told multiple times that I'm basically saying that the black community is not smart enough to know. That's not ever anything I ever said. I'm saying that they use the weapon of our identity towards our enemies, and then also use it against us individually. The passport bros is would be an expansion of that using our identity, our in internal division and community fights, the diaspora wars, they use that too. What the passport bros are doing is now spreading the, the mis and disinformation that other ethnic groups don't like us either, right? If they go over there and then they, they screw over those women, then the women don't like them either. And they also started out not liking black women, right? Like they didn't want to listen to what black women had to say to warn them about those guys, right? But then I've seen a couple of those women go, well, I, I was supporting the passport bros, but now I don't like black men. So what does that do? That brings everything black onto the black community coming from just about everybody. So when I see the Russian interference, I see it from multiple vantage points because I see it culturally, but I also see it from the standpoint of what this means, impacting our ability to vote, impacting our family structures, impacting our ability, right now what we're watching, laws being put in place to take out uh, the, the voting rights, right? We're now seeing that again, right? That's That was Jim Crow. How was it in 2023? Because we allowed that missing disinformation that Russia seeded that both, by the way, they're still doing, and other countries have picked on, picked up on. Sorry, um, and and the fact that we don't realize is that that was the success. The passport bros is an example of their success. That is the thing that like we need to start connecting the dots about. So it's it's sad for me to be like, here's what I was trying to warn us about. Y'all didn't want to listen, and here we are looking at all the um, ramifications of the fact that we didn't want to do anything about that. I also think about this really importantly in connection to you because of Ukraine. One of the things that happened after people finally realized that Russian Russia was using black identity as a weapon, that the Africans trying to get out of Ukraine, when they were putting out their videos, people here were saying, well, that's Russia probably doing that. Don't watch those videos because that's, you know, that's false narratives. Imagine using my work that finally you realize Russia was interfering and now stopping people who are trying to leave a war and save their lives by using the complete opposite narrative. Do you know how many times I had to share with people what was really happening and point the media to the, Afri the Africans trying to get out? Because they were saying, well, those videos are false. And I was like, they're not false. You cannot sit here and take my work and then use it against another group of people in the opposite way. 
that's the trick of what Russia does. Because now when people accepted what Russia was doing, when black people were really were speaking up in Ukraine, they were saying, well, no, 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 that's Russia. Absolutely. While these people were literally trying to save their lives. Absolutely. And you, you said a word and I just want to tell you, because I'm doing an eight part series was well, probably going to be, you know, maybe a little bit longer uh, that focuses on fleeing Ukraine while black. And I'm going to be doing a lot of disinformation. Uh, there's going to be that component to the to the series. And you're definitely right, because look, as somebody who was there and is working on this ongoing for more than a year. Yes, that it definitely was real. And these, this is just the repercussions of us not having a regulated, honest, working social media ecosystem. And until we stop being afraid of the word regulation, well, some people stop being afraid of the word regulation, then these problems are going to continue to exist. But Shireen Mitchell, you are at the forefront of fighting disinformation. You are one of our greatest experts in this country. Everybody who follows me, the government people, uh, officials in the United States, State Department, etc., will know that you are a go-to person to hire for expertise, uh, whose work should be cited. And anytime my show needs someone with 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 that type of needed expertise, you will be my first person to go to. Very grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I've learned a great deal just in this past hour, and I'm pretty sure that my listeners have as well. No, I, I appreciate coming and, and being here, and, I, and I'm thankful for those that recognize our work no matter what happens. And my hope is, like, it, if you once you get into, like, fleeing Ukraine, I would love to be able to come in and share some of the things that we experienced. It was really difficult to get people to realize that some people could get out and some people couldn't and 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 to be able to let those people share their own stories which is what social media was supposed to be about but the influence of russia made that difficult and we need to be able to understand the spectrum of what regulation means and how that helps us from the local individual perspective to the global perspective like what happened in ukraine and what's now happening in other countries Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please give us a five-star rating on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. And remember to support Black Diplomats financially by going to PayPal. And you can go into your browser and type paypal.me backslash Black Diplomats. Also, on Cash App, and you guys simply type in cash sign Black Diplomats. And then on Venmo, again, go into your browser and type account.venmo.com backslash you backslash black diplomats again all this information can be found in the show notes so the music you all heard at the top of the show and is playing right now is by ink prod the name of the song is called dreams thanks again for listening and talk to you again next week Trying to live and build wealth all in variety. Uh, uh, I really need someone to please enlighten me on how I'm gonna do this shit while in society. Uh, I was a prodigal son lost in desire. Didn't speak on a lot. Imagination was my fire. Ignorant but innocent, so consequences wasn't dire. Was a fiend for a dream, nigga. I was just trying to get. Higher.